Welcome to the podcast that is guaranteed to improve not only your photography, but your mind, body, and spirit as well. We have a fantastic season prepared for you, full of interviews with the top image makers and videographers in the industry. Fun fact, this podcast has a budget of 10,000 US dollars for gold-plated vape mods. I'm serious. It's true. And now, without further ado, welcome to the RGGEDU podcast, where Rob and Gary talk and drink with your favorite photographers. Season 5 of the RGGEDU podcast is brought to you by X-Rite. Color perfectionist photographers and filmmakers count on X-Rite for turnkey color management solutions that deliver expert results across their complete creative workflow. From capture to edit to print. Perfect your color. Perfect your story. X-Rite. It's the beginning of season five, and we have just arrived in Brooklyn, New York, and we're at Jay Maisel's studio. Jay, thank you so much for having us. You're the first episode of season five. We're really excited to be here. We also have Rob Grimm. I'm always here. He's always here, unfortunately. I've got got to bring him everywhere I go, Jay. Somebody needs to have your bail money ready for you. (laughs) Truly, it is a pleasure to meet you. Um, I've been in the business a long time, and you've been an inspiration to me, and I've watched your career um, for the 30 years I've been in it. So um, we're really thrilled that we have the opportunity to sit down and talk with you. One of the things we want to do is definitely introduce a lot of our audience to some of the legends or some of the uh, more well-established photographers in the business because they haven't had that opportunity to really know about who you are. Would you mind giving our audience just kind of a little rundown of of you and and kind of your career, how how you even entered the business in the first place after painting school? After what? After painting school. Well, uh... I went to high school, and I had a very great teacher named Leon Friend, and he turned me on to the arts. Mm-hmm. And before that, it was just like sports and girls. And, <laughs> and after after high school, I went to uh, I wanted to go to Cooper Union, but I was too chicken to take the exam, so I applied a day late. Yeah, and I had to wait a year before I could get in. And in that year, I got a scholarship to a painting school, and I studied with a man named Joseph Hirsch, who was a terrific, yeah. terrific artist. And then I went to Yale, and I studied painting with Joseph Albers, and that convinced me to be a photographer because <laughs> we didn't get along at all. <laughs> and all the time I was supposed to be uh, supposed to be in painting, I was sneaking out to take photographs. There wasn't any plan. Yeah. They're very rarely the plan. Almost never. In my case. <laughs> yeah. And um, I was working at different factories and bakeries in uh, New Haven. I decided I had to get started because it's going to be years because I could only go in on Tuesday to show my work. We lived in New Haven. Uh, so I went to my father and I asked him, I want you to front me some money. And he's a very generous guy, always was, and always talked about he wanted my education was very important. I said, look, I went to a free high school. I got a scholarship. 
I got other scholarships. I went to a free this. You didn't have to lay out a fucking penny for anything. <laughs> he said, so now I want you to lay out my, he said, what do you want? And I said, I want 50 bucks a week till I can get on my feet. But 50 bucks a week was a lot of money in those days yeah. because I, I rented an apartment for $53 a month. You know, a three-room apartment. Wow. Yeah. So. Um, in New York. That's amazing. In New York. And so I, I started going around and seeing people and showing them my work. And sometimes they would buy something and sometimes they would recommend me to somebody else. And incrementally, it got, you know, more and more better and better, easier and easier as you get, you get more well-known. There was a... Um, there was an agent that wanted to take me on. I won't mention names. Okay. And uh, they're dead already anyway. <laughs> and so they, they wanted my portfolio. When I gave them my portfolio, I was 23 years old, 24 years old. And I went back months later, and I said, so what's happening? And I said, come on, kid. You know, we've only had it a month. I said, well, who saw it? Oh, a lot of people saw it. What did they say? Uh, a lot of different. I said, give me the portfolio bank. And I said, if I'd had it, I'd have known who saw it, what they had to say, yeah. whether they liked it or not. So I don't need you to do a song and dance on me. So I represented myself, which I kind of enjoyed anyway, so it wasn't a problem. And that, that's how it all began. So what do you think of... What do you think it was about the painting, other than not liking your painting teacher, that um, kind of drove you to photography? And what was it about having the camera in your hand that was that was the that moment that like this is where I need to be? It was not anything about having a camera in my hand. That was that's just a mechanical thing. It was just that it gave me license and it gave me a structure within which to observe. I gave me a reason to observe, and uh, it also was not about not liking my painting teacher. It's just that it coincided at a moment where I was getting feedback from him about my work and other people, too, that you're not that good, a painter, you know? I didn't think I was either, so there was a general confluence of opinions on that but it just was fun to go out and shoot let's go back to the earlier part of when you attended uh, university if you had the choice to study something different starting out would you looking back now I, I think I'm very deficient in a lot of things because I didn't study them when I was a kid. I, I don't, my literature is abysmal. I don't read as much as I should. I read a lot, but I don't read, I don't, I don't have a grasp of really great literature. Uh, of the 50 great books, I probably read one. I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah, I would probably do what I tell kids to do now is, is to get as broad a background as they can and not to get a specific photographic background at all. So on the topic of schools, when you see or hear of schools like uh, Brooks closing, do you think photographers today need to have a formal training, uh, university-level training, to become a photographer? It ain't opinion? brain surgery, <laughs> you know? I mean, you can, 
You can pick a lot of it up on your own. But more important, it is imperative if you want to take pictures that have any meaning that you be a broad-based individual, that you have a, a background in not just the arts, but a lot of the literature and the history and geography, so you have a comprehensive understanding of the world, rather than uh, there's an expression in French, dumb like a painter, meaning somebody who spent all their life studying painting and doesn't know beans about anything else. And I try to tell kids that are going into it to be as broad-based as they can because uh, the, the, the gag was, how do you take more interesting pictures? And I said, well, you have to become an interesting person because interesting people take interesting pictures. How old were you or how far into your career do you think you were when you really figured that out? And, and About really... 80. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I knew my lack of uh, a broad-based knowledge, comprehensive knowledge of the world, and I try to, you know, make up for it. But if you haven't... Well, let me put it this way. Everybody loves the music from when they were about 16 to 25. That's the music for you. That's the art for you. And I was very invested in art at that time, so I, I, I know all kinds of business about art, but I didn't know anything about music or literature or anything. I was, you know, dumb like a painter. I feel like I'm the same way, a little bit. Oh, you're Le Led, Ze Led Zeppelin was my... <laughs> when, I, when I think of me being 16, I had a 1964 Mustang, and I liked Led Zeppelin. I totally passed the times. Absolutely not from the seventies, right? That right? was in the nineties. Yeah. But it was Led Zeppelin and Mustangs. Right. I was born in the wrong time, Jay. We I'm all are. Yeah, I think I think that's true about everybody. I really do. A what, lot of people. Were born so, what decade were you born in, Rob? I was born in the sixties. No, really born in. Um, actually, I was pretty much born in the right time. I just wish I would have been a little bit older to enjoy it. You know. <laughs> 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 well, I always thought I wish I was younger to enjoy the 60s more mm -hmm. than I realized that was a bad mistake. Mm. You know, it was good that I had a little kind of outside look at what was really worth screwing around and what was ri worth risking. Right. See, that's my thing. I wish I was a little older in the yeah. 60s. I was riding around on a you know, tricycle in the 60s. Oh. So <laughs> I wish I was a little older at that point. That I was riding decade. around on a motorcycle. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so in the years after uh, graduating and you're kind of out on your own, what were those years like? What were you doing? How did you, how did you get to a point in your career where you said, I, I think I've, I'm beginning to make it? I was very monomaniacal about everything, you know. I, I didn't really want to play. I wanted to work. I was very compulsive. Was. <laughs> I've always been pretty compulsive. And I just got into it as deep as I could. It was uh, all-consuming. And it wasn't for the purpose of arriving at any one place in terms of my uh, career it was just like I wanted to work. It's very important, and I still have that. Uh, somebody once told me that the only two things I didn't feel guilty about was work and sex. 
You know, I was fine when doing either, but <laughs> anything else, I wanted to get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're a few years out of school. What was the what was the stuff that was paying your bills? How were you making a living as a photographer? Well, his father was giving him fifty bucks a month. <laughs> A week. Oh, a week. A, a week. week. A week. Yeah. Fifty bucks a month. You're a cheap bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did a lot of uh, pharmaceutical stuff. I had the knack of being able to photograph stuff that looked realistic. It was probably because I had very little technical mastery of anything. And that's not a joke. I'm serious. I mean, my pictures looked real because they were not technically good. And the next guy over might have taken the same goddamn picture and would have looked like an ad. But mine were because I had no ability. I didn't light anything for years. I, everything was window light. That's a great idea, you know. And that's the most beautiful light. Yeah, it is. And I, since I didn't know how to use light at that point, I used window light all the time. And I sold a lot of pictures out of my file, and which was unusual, and got me to the idea that stock photography would be a great thing to do. And I did a lot of things out of my files, but I never shot for stock. In other words, there, there were photographers who would go out and invest a certain amount of time and money in shooting things that they thought were going to sell. And I always thought that was speculative and I didn't want to do it. But I shot what I loved. And if I didn't sell it, I was fine. If I had done all this work trying to sell it, it would have been an abysmal failure if I didn't. But I didn't have to deal with that. I just, I just shot what I liked to shoot. And I was lucky enough to be able to sell it. Yeah, you, you touched a couple times on the word observations um, earlier in this, in this yeah. conversation. And I think that that's one of the things that has been um, so recognizable in your work is it, it does feel very real. It feels almost like the common moment, just an observation. Or um, so many other photographers, they really spend an enormous amount of time kind of working a composition and, and, and trying to massage it into being their photograph. Um, do you think that was just your, your initial eye was, was drawn to being an observer of the world, seeing what's around you? Well, I think every photographer is an observer of the world, unless he's the kind of person that wants to create the world in the studio, mm. once you let them out on the street, the only thing they have to do is observe. Right. Mean, and I, I, well, I'm not as mobile as I used to be. I've lost yeah. about 27 steps going to first base. So <laughs> what I've been doing, and I feel very grateful to have the ability to do this, is I've been going back over all my old work. I mean, we're talking 60 years of shooting. Yeah. And I discovered two things. Number one, I was pretty bad at the beginning. Number two, when in my prime, I was the most insecure photographer that ever lived and I sh I overshot everything and the reason was who knew what the exposure was you know I mean today you, you see what you got and you move on from that but that wasn't available right. then and so if I always felt a great responsibility to my clients and if my client said to me you need this shot I'm going to shoot that shot and somebody sees that shot 
And they say, what exposure was that? And I said, I have no idea. I shot every known exposure to man. (laughs) (laughs) Covering your bases. I'm paying for it today. In in the last two, three weeks, we we threw out about 25,000 pictures, at least, at least. And while it's very important for me to go through the good stuff, it's also important to get rid of the shit because I don't want to leave it behind. <laughs> don't want that legacy. Will you, def- will you define, you said that in your prime, you were the most secure pho- photographer known. I was the most what? Insecure photographer yeah, yeah. known. Well, why do you say you were so insecure? Because I didn't ever know what the right exposure was. And I, was could... over, I never worried about composition. I never worried about content. I never worried about lighting, except that I was always afraid I wasn't going to get the right exposure. So I would overshoot a lot of stuff. Okay. And that's not only... Come on in. Whoever it was, they live here. Why don't they come in? <laughs> you don't mind. Just a no, 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 absolutely. I don't want them to stand out there. You scared her away. <laughs> Sadie and a friend. Well, let them come in if they want. They're halfway down the block to the coffee shop. Oh, okay. Get a few wow, more mics out. Fast coffee. Okay, go. I forgot where I was. Oh, uh, we you, we were talking about you were had insecurity. Throw, yeah, insecurity and yeah. throwing. Yeah, out that 20, was the only thing I was insecure about. Okay, I never worried about the content of what I was doing. I never worried about the technical sharpness and all that. I just worried I would have the wrong exposure. Interesting. Did you not shoot with Polaroid much? Never. Almost never. Never. Well, I'm working on the streets, man. Yeah. The only time I shot with Polaroid was when Polaroid gave me a job. And I asked him if I could shoot Kodachrome. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Oh, God, that's classic. And well, it, it, it turns out it, it wasn't that strange because they said, well, you won't be using Polaroid, Polaroid film. You'll be using a different kind of film. And it was something they were experimenting with. And the product that I was advertising was not the film. It was the fact that Kodak uh, Polaroid had just made at that point a thing that you could use instead of a film holder. Mm-hmm. You had a holder that you could use a million times without worrying about carrying film holders with you. So I was actually shooting ectochrome. Oh, right. Yeah. But ectochrome wasn't bad at that yeah, time. Yeah, the preloaded sheet Yeah, film. exactly. I, yeah, I remember that. that... So... As a matter of fact, um, I was friendly with Joel Meyerowitz, and Meyerowitz mm-hmm. said to me at one point, I'll teach you how to use... He, he knew I had an 8x10. He said, I'll teach you how to use the big camera. Yeah. And we'll devote a day to it. Okay. So I come back from the shoot, and I said, listen, I just did this whole shoot on 4x5, and I want to thank you for the offer, but I now know how to use it. And I I did 600 shots while I was there. Mm-hmm. And there was a moment silent, and Joel said, I don't think you really began to understand the concept of the big camera. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, I was using a Graflex, right. which is just, uh, it's a 35 millimeter on steroids. Yeah, it's a big, So yeah. I was hand-holding it. I was doing a lot of things that I wanted to do. 
So, and that's very different from an eight by ten. Four by five. Well, the oh, Graflex. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was trying to oh, teach yeah. eight by ten. Yeah, he was know. talking about a, a lot of things that the Graflex can't. Do. Right. Yeah. Yeah, the Graflex. I mean, that was really it was a think about this. That was a photojournalist camera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was a photojournalist camera. Right. Four it by is, five film. It's it is a thirty-five millimeter camera on steroids. Yeah. That's what it is. A thirty-five millimeter single X reflex. So back, back kind of into the early days. Where do you think you really picked up the the business side of photography and and how the industry is? Well, I I had the business side of it fairly organized at the very beginning. The first client I ever went to see, he explained to me that he needed folders and he would give me X amount of dollars for the folder, but it had to include the model fee, the film, the processing, and everything. And I said, fine, it's a fair thing. I don't remember the exact figures. And he said, sometimes we might use a folder for two folders if the pictures are really good. I said, and you'll pay for two folders. And he said, oh, I don't know. He said, that, that would take a lot of paperwork. I said, hire more secretaries, for Christ's sake. <laughs> why, why should I be penalized and lose a shoot because you're taking a shoot for nothing? I, I want it clearly understood. I get paid for every folder you use, whether it took one shoot or two shoot or three. He looked at me and said, okay. And so I had a pretty arrogant attitude in the first place. And that was not helped by the fact that I often thought that the guy on the other side of the table was being unreasonable, mm -hmm. which is, I'm sure, a mirror image of what he thought. <laughs> <laughs> right. So the, the business, I don't know, my dad and I talked about business. He was a salesman. And one day he was talking to me about the uh, the various parts of industry. He said, you know, you have a a manufacturer, you have a wholesaler, you have a jobber, you have a retailer, you have and I said, Well if you could cut out some of those middlemen, you'd be able to sell a product cheaper. He, he grabbed me by the neck, pulled me in, he said, I'm a middleman, you little <laughs> bastard <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a tough guy. Yeah, sweet guy. Yeah. Sweet guy. So over the years if if you had a, a strong business sense, um let's talk a little bit about how you use that to just you know, grow your business. What What do you think were the the big jobs and the big things that really pushed your career forward? I I never was proactive in the sense that you're implying. I I didn't have a plan. I I've never had a plan, and I think that there were incremental things along the way that were a big help. Uh, when Marty Goldstein started the Friendly Publications, the Black Book. I took ads out in that, and I think that was helpful. But I was at a point where I could do it. Uh, what I mean is, uh, I would get asked by young photographers, should I take out an ad in a black book? And I said, well, if you're really good and you think you're better than everybody, yes, I think you should. But if you're not, you're just paying a lot of money to tell somebody you suck. So be careful about that. That was helpful to me. Uh, also, I never really tried to specialize in anything. I just sort of liked to take whatever came in. And the only criteria I had was <clears throat> I would like to structure, I would at that point have liked to structure all my work 
based on the fact that I would shoot it even if I wasn't getting paid for it. So that I had no apologies to make for right, it. Right, did it have interest to you? Yeah. I mean, there are, there, there's a job I shot which was uh, a guy standing with a calf in the snow. And it related to the fact that this calf was on a computer from the moment it was born. And then they wanted me to do another shot a couple of months later of that calf in the loft with the hay and everything with the computer. And I said, that's bullshit. That that goes under what Greg Heisler used to call kill it and bill it. <laughs> <laughs> but in the, most cases, I was able to bring a certain amount of uh, passionate interest to a thing, then I was going to do a better job. And if I couldn't, I really didn't want to do the job. Not specializing is a, is kind of a trick in many ways. I think so many photographers, and, and I know I'm one of them being a food and, and beverage guy. That's Those are my specialties. I think it's difficult in many ways to be a generalist. You... Or, or not, maybe I shouldn't use the word generalist, but to, to shoot in so many different veins, um, it's in some ways it's hard to be known for that. You feel well, like you can yeah, do it all, yeah. uh, but you were able to do it. I No, a lot of things I couldn't do. I couldn't do fashion. I, I did fashion. I did swimsuit for Sports yeah, Illustrated. Yeah, Sports Illustrated covers. But that's not really fashion. That's more TNA, you know. <laughs> but I've always... I've never really admired fashion. Oscar Wilde once said fashion is a thing so ugly they have to reinvent it every six months. <laughs> God, but Oscar Wilde's great. That's awesome. I, di- I didn't do still life. I love shooting still life on my own, but not with products. I never did uh, beauty. I never did um, cars and stuff. I mean, I know guys who made it their life's work to find something and... Again, no name. Some somebody decided he was going to do cars, and he went after cars, and he made mm-hmm. a good living doing cars for a lot of money. But that that didn't interest me. I didn't like the idea of doing one thing, same thing, going back to do it again, because it might get better, it might get worse, but it was going to be the same. And so I love the idea of at that point in my life of drifting around in a cross current of everybody else's needs and mm-hmm. trying to solve them. Then at some point, I realized the terms of the business were getting lousy and I wanted to get out because I was very unhappy about the fact that I had a bid on a job. Mm-hmm. And whereas in the past, I had the golden years, I'm not unaware of it. In the past, they would send you out with a pile of money and tell you to investigate something visually. They now sent you out with a smaller pile of money and told you to do exactly what they wanted you to do. Mm-hmm. And the more it came to following a layout, the less interested I was in anything, both from an aesthetic, egomaniacal, and legal point of view. And I tried to explain to them, well, I, I made it a... Uh, I made my way out of the business very easily by explaining in my paperwork that I would not follow any layout anybody gave me. <laughs> <laughs> and I pointed out that there's a reason for that that's in their favor because I don't know where the layout came from. And you don't know where the layout came from. And he may have copied it from somebody, and then I copy it. You know, right, I'm not so going to do that. Plagiarism. I mean, I had guys call me and say, listen, I just photographed your layout your picture in a new layout 
I don't want to warn you somebody's going to call you and ask for permission after right. the fact. It gets done. It it protects the client if you don't follow the layer. But the, the last straw was when I was doing a shoot, and I, I, we had a, a little boat with fishing poles coming out, and the guy said, the fishing poles are on the left in the layout. I said, yeah, it looks better. He said, we don't want better. We want the layout. That was it. I don't want to play that game. Right. Your freedom was gone. Huh? The, your freedom was gone to, to really create not, the Not just that, that but I knew it looked better one way and then right. one in another way. Could it pass 14 committees? Yeah. Focus yeah. groups. <laughs> I, I had a great time in the business. I mean, I, I had great assignments. I had... I had one assignment where we went around the country and photographed, and it was me, the art director, my assistant, and a model, two models. And I was telling somebody from the same agency how we did this, and we did it without a storyboard, we did it without a layout, we did it without anything except the idea, let's do great pictures. Mm -hmm. And the kid I was telling it to said, if if... If that was done at the agency today, all people involved would be fired. Yeah. And that's part of the problem. Yeah, because it's not controlled. Yeah. What was the assignment? What were you, what were you exploring? Coke. Coke. Yeah. Go around the country and shoot stuff. Uh, just with two models. So you just traveled around with two models shooting Coke? Well, yeah. yeah. The art director said, oh, just go. You and I. You and I. We'll go. I said, bullshit, you and I. Yeah. He said, what do you mean? I said, we got to take models. Oh, you're so commercial. You're so young and you got so commercial. I said, come on, Al. There's Al Scully with the art director. And I said to him, we're going to go out there. We're going to find the most beautiful light in the world. And it's just going to be you and me. There'll be nobody to photograph. <laughs> so we brought models. And I had an assistant who was six foot eight, Paul Podet. Had hair growing out of every part of his head. <laughs> we had Al, who was a ruddy-faced, gray-haired, white-haired Irishman. Myself, who looked a little bit like Jesus Christ at the time. <laughs> and and, and a, a very beautiful, beautiful girl, Adam male model. And people kept on coming up and saying, are you a rock group? <laughs> and finally we said, yep, Fleetwood Mac. we're called the four perverts and the captive. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we, they ran, this was not even for print, this was for TV. Wow. They ran eight commercials on it. Everybody was very happy. It was a different time. Right. Very different time. So what were you, some of your favorite assignments? Like, obviously Coke, but what were some of the other ones that really meant so much to you because you just had the ability to Oh, go? Coke was just that one thing. Yeah. And... Uh, I did United Technology with a guy named Gordon Bowman, who is like an incredible conceptual guy. And I did United Technology for about eight years, and they were all institutional ed. They weren't trying to sell anything except the concept of United Technology. And they only had two, two spaces that they bought. It was the center section of the New Yorker, Double page and the center section, double page in the New York Times magazine section. Mm -hmm. This is all they bought, so it was well reproduced. And as a matter of fact, I I called the guy who was doing the uh, engravings and everything, and I said, "You you're the one that does the ads 
for United Technology to separate? He said, yeah. What's wrong? And I said, nothing. I just want to call you and tell you I just think they're terrific. And there's a moment of silence, and he says to me, I've been in business 35 years. Nobody ever told me anything was any good. <laughs> but they were well reproduced, and, and Gordon was a terrific guy to work with. And uh, we just had no subject matter, whatever they happened to want to push. And they were, they were my ideal client because they asked me to shoot cars one day and cars being painted because they had a, a division that related to that. And I called him up and I said, I'm not doing it. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, the colors they're painting today is champagne and puce and beige. And it's an explosive atmosphere with spray paint, so I can't use light. It sucks. We've got to rethink it. And I gave them another solution. They were happy. And it happened a couple of times where they sent me out to do something and I found something better. And it didn't go through layers. It went through Gordon. And he would say, yeah, that's a better idea. Use it. Puce is not a color I hear, except in Monsters, Inc. and here with Jay. <laughs> <laughs> the color puce, you don't hear that too often. No, you don't want to. <laughs> no, 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 It's in Monsters, Inc.? It's in Monsters, Inc., yeah. Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely, you got to watch that. So a lot of artists, um, a lot of the greats have muses through the years or inspirations, people they work with over and over. Have you had um, a muse throughout your career? I'm sorry, but uh, I'm not sure I understand the concept of them. Someone that, someone that you've shot with over and over and over again. A and client? Uh, a model. Subject. A uh, subject. Just anything that you always shot over and over and found a new way to shoot them over and over and over. I, I've been fortunate enough to work with some incredible models. I mean, the, the phrase supermodel... It's very apt because they can do things that are unbelievable. I remember one time I was uh, shooting Cheryl Teagues, and I said, okay, and it was like a light bulb turned on, and I said, okay, we're done, and the light bulb turned off. It was like, wow. I don't know if I want to get emotionally involved with somebody who can do that. And at one time I was shooting Elle McPherson, and I said, make believe the camera is somebody that you love. And she turned on such a look that I turned around to see who just walked onto the set. <laughs> she's that, she's she's that good. good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but I mean, I've not worked with them again and again. It's mostly been a one-time thing. There's a model named Wally Coover who I used once, and she showed up and she looked like hell. And I said, oh, God. She said, give me 15 minutes. And 15 minutes later, I fell in love. She was amazing. She did not have a bad angle. She could not. Uh, this was a kid who was discovered by Richard Avedon mm. opening doors for cabs for tips. Really? Yeah. She, she became a very, very wow. top model. Quite a transition for her. Yeah. Can we talk about framing versus comp composition? For a minute, yeah, because yeah. a, a while ago I heard you talk about framing, and it actually made me kind of, it kind of scrambled my brain a little bit because it made me rethink um, a little bit. Because I, I know myself and a lot of other photographers talk about composition, particularly yeah. when we're talking about student yeah. to students, yeah. and we talk about how to bring the eye in and move it through the composition, um, and and get it to come back to kind of the the central focus of the of the of the image. But you made a comment about framing that really kind of shook me a little bit in that you don't think people really understand how to frame. 
They don't think about framing enough. I don't remember saying anything like that. Oh, really? Really? Yeah, it was a, it was a, a, I think a video in there. What I saw. you may have misheard is that I don't think there's anything that you would call composition involved in my work, because composition implies that I could take this element and move it to the right, or that I could take this element out because it doesn't work. But that's that's what goes on in a studio. That doesn't go on in real life. Right. So uh, I had this argument with a lot of photographers who say, oh, yeah, there's still composition involved. And I was arguing with Bill Allard in front of a group of people, and he said, what happens if you move four inches to the left, Jay? And I said, fuck you, Bill. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. But generally, composition refers to your ability to put a hierarchy of objects into a specific relationship right. that pleases you. I'm not dealing with that most of the time. I'm dealing with the the world that's out there. Right. And the best I can do is move four inches to the left, four inches right. to the right. In fact, excuse me, <coughs> some young kid once asked me, tell me in three words how I could be a better photographer. I immediately said, move your ass. Don't just stand in one right. place. Move around. The world is not a theater that you're sitting looking at the screen. The world is all around you. So it's important to move, and in moving, you can change composition. I, I tell people don't always shoot from the height of your eyeballs. Get up, get down. One of the reasons I don't shoot much now is because I can't move as much as I want. I, I, I went through a lot of pictures of people have taken of me shooting, and I'm never shooting from the height of my eyeballs. I'm either in the dust or on a ladder or on a crane or something is moving me. So it, it's important to keep moving, and that will change the composition. Yeah, and that, that's actually what, what that conversation was. You were talking about moving out in the world and framing. Right. And for me, I, it, it shook me because I think I am in the studio so much of the time, and I am working with such a... World. Yeah, I'm working with such a set composition, and... Yeah. Um, I, I just thought it was a really fascinating co conversation, and the, the word framing I really like. Uh, I think it's almost a, a word that's kind of started to disappear from the mm. business. I think people are talking about composition more versus looking at the world and, and seeing how you would take that slice of what's out there and put it into that framework. Mm. Do you think photographers these days get too hung up on rules of composition? Do I look like I know a lot of photographers these <laughs> well, days? You, know, you, you, you talk a lot. You teach a lot. You get asked um, a lot of questions. I mean, we're here bothering you right now. I think photographers who do the kind of work that I do, which is, uh, you know, street stuff and outdoors, pretty much know what the hell they're doing. And the guys that are in the studio, they know what they're doing. It's two different things. You can't possibly walk out into the street and do the same thing you do in a studio. Or otherwise, it's going to look like you just shot in the studio. Yeah. I don't know if that's a satisfactory answer. By the way. I'll, I'll, I'll accept it this time. No, Next time, I won't. Let, let me say something. When I talk to a class and they ask me a question, I tell them, look, if I have not answered the question fully, push me, because I'm, I may think I have, and I may have not. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm telling you that you guys, Got it. if you want more on that, 
asked me more specifically. Okay. Okay. Done deal. Done. What do you think it, it takes today to be a street photographer when there's so many more photographers and there's so much more technology and it's so much easier to take a properly exposed photo? What do you think it would take today to become a well-renowned? It's so much easier to take one? A photo today. Like there's you know th- two or three uh, computers in every camera, and it's yeah. so easy to, to get a, a great do exposure. No, no, now you're saying something. It's so easy to get a good exposure. It's not easy yeah. to get a good photo. Correct, yeah. 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 It's easy to take a, a technically, technically correct good, photo. Yeah. So what do you think it takes today to become uh, a, a recognized for street photography? Passion. Curiosity. The same thing it takes to do anything. Passion, curiosity, a certain, certainly a little bit of technical knowledge. And I've gotten away with a little bit of technical knowledge all my life. And I guess putting in time. I once was photographed by John Lowengard, who had a reputation for being a horrible taskmaster and really tough on all the photographers at life. And he was photographing me. I've never seen a man work so hard in my life. And I began to understand why he was so demanding, because he demanded it of himself. He worked like a dog to get a stupid little picture of me. And I was very impressed by that. Can we talk a little bit about your... Um, I know in your portfolio, even today, there's a lot with Marilyn Monroe. Can you talk about a those? A lot of what? A lot of photos with Marilyn Monroe. No, there's not a lot of photographs of Marilyn there's Monroe. Other, there's one. There's just one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have maybe a dozen photographs of her, but I, I didn't know her or anything. I was shooting uh, at a party. But I could have had a lot of great photos. <laughs> so how did that come There's about? Well, I, I had an assignment from a magazine to shoot at a party for East of Eden, the opening. And I walked into the party with Marilyn and a bunch of cops beating guys with clubs to keep them away from her because they were all trying to touch her and everything. And we got in there, and I took that photograph that... You know, the blurred, uh, out-of-focus thing. That was taken on the run in the street. And then we got up to the um, party, and there was Marilyn and Sammy Davis Jr. Wow. And they were both at the piano. Oh, my God. And he was hustling her, (laughs) and she was playing him. (laughs) And it was wonderful. And I shot a lot on it. I shot so much that I said... I don't have a hundred frames on that camera, and I looked at the camera, and it wasn't on a take-up full. Oh no! Oh yes! Oh no! And I tell a story to everybody so they'll know it just didn't happen to them; it happens to everybody. Oh my God! But it never happened again. Yeah, no, of course not. Yeah, oh, that's that, a, that, what a moment too. Sammy oh, Davis Jr. and Marilyn oh, Monroe kind of playing God. each other. Wow, it was terrific. You know, you only you <laughs> only remember best. Those pictures you missed. Yeah. Even though you never saw them, you saw the original. Yeah, cause, and, yeah and you know you didn't get it, right? Yeah. And it drives you crazy that you know it was there yeah. and you missed yeah. that moment. Now here's another one I didn't get. <laughs> That's a great quote, actually. Yeah. That really is. What do you like to collect? <laughs> Turn around. I know, looking around, there's, there's so many great things. Oh, Amazing yeah. old yeah. toys. Like, there's so many good things. What do you like to collect? Everything. Yeah. Nothing of value. 
Nothing of value. Yeah. Just visual, things, just visual things interest. Things that I, I find in the street and things that I find in flea markets and things that nobody else wants. And that's the most fun. Because <laughs> you can always spend money and buy things. But, I mean, to find something that's really gorgeous is not necessarily constituent of money or anything. So you're looking for beauty. Yeah. yeah. Or curios curiosity. Yeah. Yeah, collections. I think collections are important. So many artists do collect. They have they have something that kind of speaks to them, and they they gather it. What do you think, photographers? Though. Oh yeah, we we gather images. We yeah, call, exactly. yeah, we're gathering slices of yeah. life as we go. Exactly. Absolutely, exactly. the whole way. The whole way. Can we talk a little bit about the first studio you purchased and the years living in that studio? I believe it was a bank. The seventy-two row before the bank. We before the bank. I had a. Uh, a one-room apartment with uh, a skylight and a wall of windows. I didn't have my own John. I didn't have a shower. I always took showers over at Cooper Union, the school that I went to, and that cost 35 bucks a month. So I moved up after that to a three-room place that cost $53 a month. And then finally, I got a loft for 125 bucks a month, 2,000 square feet. Today, God knows what. Yeah, that's big, too. And I mentioned the figures because today, these kids coming in, they're paying $4,000 for a camera and fortune for rent. And I don't know how they do it. I mean, I know Fees are the different. manner I mean, in which yeah. they solve the problem is that they get roommates and stuff, but it's tough. And after I had the loft, I bought the bank. So for someone that has said, it, at least in this interview, that you don't shoot or don't need a studio, you're always outside finding something, mm -hmm. what happened that made you want to buy such a, a huge place? I collect a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just to, I to keep your idea. stuff. I, I Well... I had been paying 125 bucks a month to this guy for 10 years, and you're going to laugh your ass off at that. I got pissed because as the 10-year lease went out, he jacked me all the way up to $175. <laughs> and I thought that was outrageous. I'd, I'd put in a whole new floor. I'd put in a dark room. I'd put in lighting and everything. So I said, I want my own place. And How quickly after that did you find that? It was the, the first bank. place I'd looked the at. First the first place that was the first place you saw yeah yeah i i, I read somewhere that you, you would ask the the real estate agent if he had more places like that and he's like are you kidding <laughs> no he said that's why i don't like photographers they're all stupid <laughs> yeah um, not many places like that that was really unique but the funny thing was this was a bank of knowledgeable people who owned that building and they owned four or five like it in new york and they decided it would be smarter to sell all four or five buildings and rent a space. Wow. So that's a that's a big undertaking. And so many photographers, you know, having their own studio is a certain marquee. Owning a building is is definitely a marquee. Um, that's a huge building. Was it was it daunting to think, oh my God, I'm going to take this place on because yeah, it's massive? Yeah, yeah because when a, when a, when a real estate agent told me. I have a bank for you. I had this image of a two-story building. Right. 
you know, with a upper floor, lower floor, mezzanine kind of thing. And when he took me through this place, he said, I can't afford this. And he said, no, no, I'll show you how you can work it out, you know. How, how did the numbers work out? I'm curious. Well, he had no idea of what things would cost. He was always underestimating everything. Yeah. And it cost a lot more than he thought. But it worked out because everything was cheap in other days. Yeah. It, it was... I had just gotten a job for J. Walter Thompson where they wanted me to do five ads, five double-page ads. And we started talking about it, and he said, uh, I can pay you 2500 each. And I said, okay. And I walked out, and I was walking out. I turned around, I said, that's 2500 a picture, not a spread. And he said... What the hell? Okay. Wow. Well, that but that's what he wasn't thinking that. I don't know what the hell he was thinking, but I now <laughs> had the down payment for the building. I didn't know that at the time, <laughs> but I now have twenty-five grand. That's a great story. And that was a down payment. And yeah, there there was not a single human being who th who thought or said, you know, Jay, this is a good idea. Right. They all said, you're fucking crazy. Right. And for our audience who doesn't know, this just wasn't a studio. This just wasn't a bank building. This was a six-story, 72-room, yeah. probably the coolest studio ever <laughs> in the U.S. I mean, it was unbelievable. Well, you know, you asked the question, why a studio if I shot outdoors? I love to shoot in studios. I love I loved the control that I had, but it was a completely different ball game. I mean, I used to get a chance to screw around. I, I used to do portraits. Close-up portraits with a 600-millimeter lens on a tripod. And you've never seen things like these. I was, able to, I was able to screw around. That was a good thing. Oh, 72 rooms. You, yeah, yeah. How long did it take you to build out 72 rooms, put well, stuff in it? I had a very good friend named Gene Moses who was a, uh, a real estate guy who became a photographer. And he said to me, Jay, don't try and do the building. Do one room. Just do one room so you have a room to retreat into from all that chaos. And as soon as I did that, it made a lot of sense. It took me three and a half years to put up one picture. I mean, it was that much construction and shit going on. And I never did anything really major. Basically, all I did was cleaning things. Yeah, the place was really derelict when you bought it. No, no, no. It was just dirty. Oh, okay. It was just dirty. Difference between dirty and derelict. derelict. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Golden Gate Bridge. As soon as he gets done finishing the, yes. all the rooms, yeah. he's got to start over. As opposed, <laughs> as opposed to New York, where they never do maintenance until it becomes tragic. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, today, what what was the last job you shot, or what was the last thing you shot for your, yourself? What are you shooting now? Myself? Yeah. What are you, what are you shooting these days? I'm not shooting. At all? Not very, even for very little, very little. Uh, what I'm doing is going back over my work every day, every day, and doing subjects that I think will make books. <coughs> I'm doing something on our, uh, foreign countries, something about the bank, something about my daughter, something about New York. I, I want to do a number of books. One of them is jaywalking in New York. Mm, cool. Yeah. So, and another is home, the bank, and away foreign places. You know. 
and that's what I'm doing. I mean, I've got a shitload of so, stuff to edit, man. <laughs> if you've just threw away 25,000 photos, how, how many photos do you have to go through, do you think? Um, I, I can't give you a, a number because we've thrown away over a million in since I've been in a bank. Wow. And... I don't really want to spend a lot of time throwing stuff away, but it, it works out that it's important to do that. Yeah. And I drive some of my friends crazy. Hey, I threw away 30000 today. <laughs> <laughs> Are they cringing, going, oh, my God. Uh, do you feel lighter or do you feel like? I feel like I don't have to look through so much shit now yeah. to find a, yeah. a good picture. Yeah. yeah. It really weigh you down having, yeah. at least I feel that way, having accrue that many photos it, it feels like a task that you have to do at the end of the day just to go through everything and call it and edit it and if, if you have a hundred good pictures that are cup you might as well not have any because you're going to have to go through the whole hundred to pick the one you want or the five yeah. you want yeah so i'm trying to throw away 95 i'm a lousy editor i'm too forgiving but i'm getting tougher do you have people helping you with the edit process saying no no we think not that? no the editing that's my responsibility. Yeah, your work, your responsibility. Yeah. How hard was it to move into here? Hang on for one second. That truck is big. How hard was it to move into this space and, and downsize from 72 Well, let me the... put it this way. Stephen Wilkes is doing a film about it. Really? Yeah. Uh, it took, before we got started, before we got finished with the packing, and the, it took 29 days to move. Oh, wow. wow. And I still have 3,000 square feet of stuff in storage that I desperately want to start inhabiting. Can I ask why did you decide to, to finally move? <sighs> I ran out of money. Yeah. Expensive building. Yeah. Well, yeah. it used to be that I could fill up the oil tank, a 2,000-gallon oil tank, for $200. Yeah. Then it became $8,000. So... I, I mean, I could have stuck it out a few years longer, but it didn't make any point. Yeah. yeah. Wait, what do you use an oil tank for that big? Heating oil. Heating oil. You don't, yeah. I don't, what the <laughs> fuck do you think? A burn toothpick? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, have, I don't know anything about owning buildings, and I'm going to throw it out there. But you've heard of oil. Sure. Yeah, I well, mean, I, I, <laughs> motor we, oil for we a car. Took, we took out the coal bin. Yeah. It was coal. Wow. I mean, I'm just used to paying electricity and gas. Yeah. That's all I do. That's all you do. And I usually do it late. <laughs> <laughs> right before it gets shut off. Don't let, yeah. them, don't let them intimidate you. Don't pay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've tried that. It was cold. So I want to talk maybe kind of towards the end of this interview. And uh, first of all, just say thank you. But um, I want to learn more about like what you want to tell photographers starting out. And like what advice do you wish you had early on to, to get you know, into your career even quicker? I got nothing. Got nothing. I got nothing. I just, if you have passion, you're going to find a way. Your way may not be the way of the guy next to you, but you're going to find a way. If you have that passion, that's all you need. You'll implement it in the way you need to. Are you still teaching workshops? I've kind of stopped, yeah. Do you think you'll do any more? I don't know. I don't know. I had to cancel the last one for medical reason. And I felt so bad that people had 
plans ruined and stuff like that. I don't want to do that again. Mm -hmm. So unless there's, uh, I get some kind of guarantee that I won't get sick, <laughs> I'm going to cancel it now. I'll talk, but if you don't show up for a talk, that's one thing. You don't show up for a week's class, you're screwing up a lot of people. I yeah. feel I've never, ever canceled a class before this. Understandable. Where can everyone find your work now to, to check check out your portfolio books. and follow you? Books. Where's a good place to buy your books? Bookstore. Bookstore. <laughs> so Amazon? <laughs> or Amazon, yeah. yeah, sure. So what, what bookstores are you currently in? All of them, basically? Any of them? Well, I did two books that I think are really important books. One is called It's Not About the F-Stop, and the other one is called Light sure. Gesture and Color. Mm -hmm. I did a third book about New York in the 50s in black and white. Those are the three last books. But I'm looking forward to doing more books. Yeah, it sounds like you have several books planned. Yeah. yeah. Um, how many books do you, do you hope to release? Uh, I'm sorry? How many more books do you hope to release? Like, how many do you think you have? I don't know. It, it, things reveal themselves when you do as much editing as I'm doing. Like, it never occurred to me to do a book called Jaywalking. Yeah. in New York and uh, I got about five or six in mind yeah. what books would you recommend from other photographers do you collect other photographers books yeah oh god yeah um, pen anything by pen no I I I had a list of three photographers, three or four photographers for my classes. It grew to 38. So I, I can start now and go forever. <laughs> but Penn is the first one. Haas, who was an influence on me. Um, Bertinsky. Stevens' work, Stephen Wilkes' work, Gregory Heisler's work. Um, all very classics. What? All classic photographers. Yeah. All Bill Allard's work. Sure, sure. Um, I hesitate to do this because I know I'm going to remember the one. Uh, Harry Gruyard. We can get the list and put it on uh, the podcast page under your profile. A little link to all your recommended books for yeah, the, for that. the listeners. We can do that. Did you have a mentor at all? Did you have anybody who was helping you, you know, guide you through the, the ways of the business at all? Or, or, or were you really figuring this out on your own? I, uh, I can remember isolated incidents. I had a friend named Alvin Chereskin who was an art director. <coughs> and we went to the same high school with Leon Friend. And Alvin says things like, you're sculpting, you're painting, you're doing three-dimensional design, you're doing lettering, you're doing calligraphy. Stop and do one damn thing, will you? And he, he said that to me because I was doing photography, I was doing painting, and that was important. Um, there's an art director named Rudy DeHarak who gave me advice because I called him and I said, hey, oh, by the way, I had, to, I had a card printed that said photography and then I had another card card printed that said design and I had called him up and I said look I just got a job being a designer for Mademoiselle magazine a hundred bucks a week he said don't 
take it. I said, what are you talking about? It's $100 a week. He said, don't take it. I said, why are you repeating? He said, because you'll do better. This is bullshit. Don't take it. Hmm. And I was going to take it. So was that hard advice to hear? Like, did no. you have to really think about it? Or you're no, like, okay. it, it was kind of a, a very, uh, very positive advice because he was telling me I could do photography right. and make a living at it. Yeah. It's a good thing you listened to him. Yeah. Because now we have all this wonderful work. No, I, I have... All my mentors told me to do one thing, and I always did another. I mean, I always, <laughs> they always said I should put ads in a black book that were commercial, and I said, screw that. The whole black book is commercial. I want to put my thing there. They always said, don't buy the bank. You're crazy. Um, you've got to learn to specialize. You, you can't be insisting on your rights all the time. You've got to do, you know, this and that. Really, that. people were saying, don't insist on your rights. That's, a, oh, that's sure, interesting. Oh, sure, because there was a lot of people that knew that if you insisted on your rights, you wouldn't get work. Right. You, somebody else would be giving it away, so they'd get yeah. the work. Yeah. yeah. And I found out very early that being a political activist photographically was like, come on, God. They were here a minute ago. <laughs> what the fuck happened to them? They're gone. They left, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I I think I pretty much did what the hell I wanted to do. Uh, I had guys who were terrific to me in the business, but I don't think, I can't think of a mentor except for my teachers. You know, friend uh, Leon Friend in mm -hmm. high school, Joe Hirsch as a painter, Albers in terms of color. But a mentor? I wish I did have a mentor. I didn't have a mentor. And if I did, and he hears this, he's going to call me and get very pissed. <laughs> <laughs> it's too funny. If he's still around, yeah. Well, Jay, I really just want to say thank you for You're allowing welcome. us to come here. We've been wanting to do this for several months now, so we do appreciate it. Yeah, it's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk with us. My pleasure. Any Thank final you. last words, final thoughts? Keep shooting. Keep shooting. All right, that's yeah. a good good way to end this. <laughs> awesome. To download this episode of the podcast, you can go to rggedupodcast.com and also subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and where else, Rob? Oh, MySpace. MySpace. All right. <laughs> MySpace it is. Thanks so much. Oh, and Vine. Can't oh, we find it on Vine? I don't know what Vine is. You do not. I have no idea what that is. Vine died too. Died on the My producer is telling me that I may have gotten my facts wrong. This podcast does not have a budget of $10,000 for vape mods. It's actually 12000 Season 5 of the RGG EDU podcast is brought to you by the new I1 Studio from X-Ray. The start-to-finish color management solution for color perfectionists looking for expert results. I1 Studio features a full suite of tools to calibrate and profile all your devices. From capture to display to mobile to print, your prints will match your vision more perfectly than you ever thought possible. I1 Studio, built by color perfectionists for color perfectionists.